All right. Um, folks, welcome to the PID special invited lecture. My name is Nadim Haq. I am the Vice Chancellor of PAID and therefore I have the welcome task of honoring and welcoming our speaker. Professor James Robinson, um, as all of you, I don't think anybody here who doesn't know him, I don't think there's a single person. Professor, I ask most people where I give a lecture, have you read Why Nations Fail? And you should see the number of hands that rise up. I mean, almost everybody's read uh, that book. And now I think the same thing will happen with uh, The Narrow Corridor. Absolutely masterful books, which go through a wide range of history and give you deep lessons from um, all over the world. So absolutely great work. So it's wonderful to uh, have welcome Professor uh, Robinson here. Uh, just for your information, uh, uh, Jim, um, PID was formed by Harvard about 70 years ago, one of the first think tanks in the world. And it was probably set up to try and see how we can mainstream research and thinking and ideas like yours into policy. I'm not sure we succeeded, but it's, it survives. And lots of good people have contributed to it, including famous professors like Harry Johnson, Keith Griffin, many other people have come and worked at PID and helped us grow. Hmm. Um, so there we are, and we are trying to now follow the tradition and trying to mainstream um, policy and research you know, into our academia. And people like you, when you come and talk to us, it just inspires our students. And really this lecture is for our students to learn from you and to put your work or use your work into their research and develop it from there. So there we are. Um, so with that, let me first, before I hand the floor over to you, Professor Robinson, let me ask Fahad Zulfikar, who has worked hard to get you on here, to give a brief introduction and a welcome address to you, and then the floor will be yours. Fahad, go ahead. Thank you so much, sir. <laughs> Professor James Robinson is the director of the Pearson Institute hmm. for the study of and resolution of the global conflicts. Professor Robinson is guiding the Institute's research agenda, engaging the international academia and practitioner community through the Pearson Global Forum in setting the curriculum for the next generation of leaders and scholars. Professor Robinson's areas of academic interest are political and economic development and the factors that are the root causes of conflict. His work explores the underlying relationship between poverty and the institutions of a society and how institutions emerge out of political conflicts. His work has deepened the understanding of political institutions throughout the world. Professor Robinson is widely recognized as the co-author of Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity and Poverty with Professor Isi Moghlu. The book is translated into 32 languages since its publication in 2012 and offers a unique historic exploration of why some countries have flourished economically while others have fallen into poverty. Hmm. Professor Robinson has also written and co-authored numerous books and articles, including their claimed economic origins of dictatorship and democracy, and the narrow corridor, state societies, and the fate of liberty. Both books co-authored with Professor Isimoglu. Hmm. Sir, a very big warm welcome to you. We are really looking forward to your talk. And thank you so much for being with us at five today. today. My, my pleasure. Uh, thanks very much for those for that. Thanks very much, very much for the invitation and for those very generous, uh, very generous remarks. Um, so what I'm, I'm, I'm just going to talk about the book in, in it's a very long book, and, but I'm going to try and talk about it uh, or the main ideas for, for 40 minutes. And then I very much look forward to 
to, to hearing, you know, people's thoughts and, and, and getting questions. And, you know, and I just hope, I just look forward to coming there and lecturing in person when, well, I've never actually been to Pakistan. Isn't that embarrassing? I've, I've worked with Ali Chima at LUMS and also um, Asim Kwaja at, uh, at the Kennedy School. And, uh, but I've never been to Pakistan. So it's, it's very embarrassing, it's deeply embarrassing to me to have a research project about a country that I've never actually visited. I think it's the first time for me. So, so I'm very much looking forward to coming and, and meeting you all in person and lecturing. That'd be very, very exciting. Um, so, so without further ado, let me share my screen and, and, and jump into this. Okay, here we go, whoops. Now, now what do I need to do? I need to, okay, slideshow, all right, here we go, sorry. All right, can you see that? Yes, we can. Okay, great, so The Narrow Corridor. Uh, so what's the, what's, what's the book about? Um, I think, I think uh, you know, uh, in writing this book, uh, Professor Asamoglu and I, we, we, you know, we may not have succeeded, but we, we, you know, we had several, maybe, maybe I can come back to this at the end, but we had several objectives. And one of the objectives was to try to sort of broaden the, the agenda or broaden the dependent variable. So, so, so let, let, let me start with two claims, you know, but what, both of which, the first of which may be, you know, contentious, uh, which is that human beings want to live in liberty. And what, what, what do we mean by liberty? Well, here's a very standard definition of liberty, which comes from John Locke's second treatise of government, a state of perfect freedom to order their actions. So, so, so someone lives in liberty if they're in a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they see fit without asking leave or depending on the will of any other man. So this is a classic definition of sort of negative liberty, if you like. So, so, so that's, that's the first claim. That's a sort of universal, un very universalistic claim. Humans everywhere in the world want to live in liberty. So, so you know, that's, a, that's an empirical claim, if you like, but, 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 but that's the first argument, okay? So that, if you accept that, the second claim is, you know, much less contentious, it seems to me, which is that there's a large amount of variation in the world in the extent to which people enjoy liberty. Okay, so, so if that's your definition of liberty, there's huge variation in the world in the extent to which people enjoy this liberty. And, and really, the, the book is trying to propose a positive theory of that, you know, where, where does all this variation uh, come to? You know, where does it all come from? And of course, you know, since we're economists, we're also interested in the connection between liberty and other things like, like economic outcomes. But the book is much more about the sort of political dynamics that would create a society which generates liberty. Okay, so, so I think, you know, uh, at the start of the book, we, we think about just, you know, how do you map this variation? And, and, and I think some sources of illiberty or some sources of variation in liberty are sort of obvious to everybody, it seems to me. Um, hold on a second. You know, so, 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 you know, I think it's very common to, you know, any, any social scientist, and this was certainly on Locke's mind, was, uh, was, you know, an obvious situation of illiberty is where, you know, you have a very powerful state that dominates society. You know, Locke, when he was writing in the in the late 17th century, was writing against Hobbes's vision of this powerful 
Leviathan, you know, and Locke was very concerned about how do you control such a thing, okay? So, oh gosh, sorry, I don't know what's happening here. All right, so, so you know, here's, here's a, you know, here's, a, here's, I think is a, you know, if you buy into this notion of liberty and illiberty, you know, in a kind of positive way, Here's a, here's a society with, you know, much less liberty than most. Uh, you know, this is, uh, if you've been in Tiananmen Square recently in Beijing, you will have seen all these cameras everywhere. The, the Chinese government are putting up millions and millions of these cameras all over the country. You know, when George Orwell uh, wrote his book, 1984, he sort of, you know, he had this famous slogan, Big Brother is watching you. Big Brother couldn't actually watch you in 1948, but now, now he can. Okay, so I think this is a, you know, this is a very familiar theme, you know, going back even earlier, you know, probably 100 years before Locke to the Huguenot uh, philosophers, you know, the Huguenot thinkers who were writing against the French, you know, the construction of French absolutism, you know, this idea of the state dominating society as a source of illiberty. Okay, but that's obviously not the whole story. You know, China China is China, but, 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 you know, there's many other parts of the world that don't seem to have much liberty that don't look anything like China, right? So here's an example, you know, like Yemen, for instance. So Yemen is not a situation where the state dominates society. In fact, if anything, it's the other way around. You know, the state hardly exists, you know, and I'm not talking about now during the Civil War, but I even, you know, before the Civil War started, you know, if you went outside Sana'a, you know, you had to go with bodyguards, you know, with Kalashnikovs, because, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the state, the national state, didn't control the territory, especially the north of the country. Instead, power was very decentralized in society. You know, there's a famous definition of the state uh, due to the sociologist Max Weber, which, you know, Weber said the state is that human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence within a given territory. So he emphasized the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence. But in Yemen, if anything, it's society that has the legitimate monopoly of violence, not the state. You know, uh, this is, you know, they, you see here some young men, boys and young men with their daggers. So, so when you sort of become of age in Yemen, you're presented with a with a dagger, and you know, and this this is a very symbolic and you know thing, and you get different sorts of daggers as you get older. So 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 the monopoly of you know violent nobody really has a monopoly of violence, but power and authority in Yemen is much more decentralized in lineages and kinship groups than it is in the central state. Okay. But, but so this is not like the Chinese case, and I'm kind of emphasizing, this is actually, you know, in some sense it's the opposite of the Chinese case. And there's probably many more places in the world that are similar to Yemen than there are similar to, to, to China. But I think it's obvious that this situation, this kind of, the, you know, the, the opposite of the Chinese case doesn't create liberty in Yemen, you know, abstracting from the current civil war, you know, which may or may not be connected to, to, to to what I'm talking about, you know, you, but even before the civil war, you know, if you read any ethnography of, of Yemen, you'll realize that, you know, th th this, th 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 this is not a situation with much liberty. The state was not dominating society, but there was quite a lot of what, you know, Hobbes in the, his book Leviathan calls war, you know, what Locke calls the state of nature, you know, so that there was feuding, intense feuding, and there was a lot of violence uh, between these different 
groups, lin lineage and kinship groups. Okay, so I'm just quoting Leviathan here. But, but, but so that's, that's a very familiar source of a liberty, you could say. But that's not the only problem with this situation in, in Yemen either. You know, and this is something I'll come back and emphasize a little bit, which is that, you know, Hobbes was wrong, you know, and Locke was right, you know, in some sense. And one of the things they disagreed about was how bad it was to be in a society with a weak state. And Locke pointed out that, well, things weren't as bad as Hobbes said, because there's what he called natural law. And, you know, I think what you see in all of these societies, types of societies where the state is weak, you see the development of all sorts of norms and practices which reduce the amount of conflict and, and disorder that Hobbes was worried about. But, but those norms and practices that emerge don't necessarily create liberty either. Okay, so I say I want to emphasize here, you know, in that the, there's very different sorts, sources of a liberty, if you like. So the Chinese case, I think is very, you know, straightforward if you know what's going on in Central Asia at the moment, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you move to the opposite of the Chinese case, there's other sources of illiberty. There's a very Hobbesian type of illiberty, but there's also a, a third type of illiberty here, which comes from the kind of response of society to this situation and the creation of norms and practices that make it, you know, that, that kind of create a, a particular type of order, but it's not a very liberal order. Okay, so, 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 so think, you know, so I'm trying to get across this image of, there's the state and there's a society and there's a kind of balance, you know, and I've given two examples, one where the state dominates society and one where, you know, you could say society dominates the state. And in neither case do you get liberty. Okay. So, and, and, and the idea of the book, and in some sense, the, 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 you know, the, the motivation behind the title, The Narrow Corridor to Liberty, is that it's somehow in the middle you know, it's somehow in the middle when it's not the state dominates society or society dominates the state, there's a kind of balance. And that's where liberty emerges, okay? And, and, and there's a narrow corridor where state and society are balanced where liberty can emerge. So, so here's the diagram, you're all, you're all academics, so I can put the diagram. I never know where the diagrams are you know, are kind of a good idea or not, but, but, but since we're all academics, that we're all, we're, we're, all, we're all comfortable with diagrams. So just think, you know, it, it, on, on the horizontal axis of what, what I'm gonna call the power of society. What do I mean by the power of society? I mean, you know, the power, of the, the, you know, the ability of society to kind of organize and act collectively, you know, and, and in a place like Yemen, there's all sorts of social structures, as I discussed, which, facilitate you know, social mobilization, collective action. So society is powerful. And on the vertical axis, I'm gonna talk about, I'm gonna, I have here the power of the state, you know, the ability of the state to maybe collect resources, to enforce regulations, to dominate society, to control society, to monitor society with all those cameras, okay? And the idea of the narrow corridor is in the middle here, this balance between the state and society. So, so over here, you know, you have what we call, using this Hobbesian terminology, a despotic leviathan. So where, where the state is much more powerful than society. On the horizontal axis here, we have a situation, I'm saying, you know, Yemen, Lebanon, you know, Lebanon also has a state, you know, Lebanon is a, is a, is a, is a place where, you know, the, the power is in society, not the national state. Mm -hmm. Where the state, where the society dominates the state, 
And in the middle, it's this balance of power and this, the thick black lines identify what we call the narrow corridor where, where this balance emerges, okay? And, and this diagram is meant to suggest a few things, you know. Uh, one is that actually, you know, it's true that the state dominates society in China, but, 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 but that it has a particular type of power in some sense. It has this very, you know, hegemonic power over society. But there's many dimensions to, to state power in terms of the cooperation of people in society and, you know, the trust that people have in the state. And what this diagram is meant to emphasize, this is a kind of theorem in the, in the academic papers sort of under, underpinning this, is actually it's in this middle, you know, where state and society balance each other that the power of the state becomes stronger. Okay, so, so there's a, a particular dynamic and I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that as I get into it. I want to talk about this dynamic, uh, between, you know, this dynamic competition between the state and society. One of the claims is that that's actually what creates the most powerful states and the most powerful society. Okay, so, so all right. Okay, so, so, so let's let, you know, so with that in mind, you know, the book is meant to provide, so this, there's our framework, you know, the book is meant to provide this way of thinking about the emergence of liberty. And it's also, it's also meant to help us think about uh, why liberty varies. You know, in some sense, that's the thing that fascinates, you know, Asimoglu and I the most, which is, you know, why, why is it that, you know, different parts of the world look so, look so different and societies have evolved in such different ways. And I guess our, our sort of view of the world is that, that you can't, that's not really, can't be determined by, you know, geography or climate. I, I never understood why economists get so obsessed with geography and things like that, you know, because, because I, you know, I, 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 it seems to me that, you know, uh, my reading of human history is that it's human creativity and ingenuity that, that's, that's the most kind of important factor. And that can lead to very different dynamics. So, so let me talk a little bit about applying the theory and kind of try to think about, for example, how come China looks like that? You know, how come in China the state dominated society? And how come in, say, Western Europe, you have more of a balance between states and society? Like, where, where did that come from exactly? Okay, so we spend a lot of time talking about things like that in the book, not about Pakistan, unfortunately, my, maybe our next book, but, but, but Pakistan, as I said, I haven't even been to Pakistan, so I'm embarrassingly ignorant. You can, you can tell me. Okay, so, so, so how do you get into the corridor? Let, let me think about how did Europe, Western Europe, for example, get into the corridor, okay? And, and to tell you about that, I'm gonna go all the way back to, 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 to the Roman, to the history of the, to the Roman Empire, to a book by Tacitus are called Germania. So Tacitus was a Roman statesman and historian. He'd never actually been, he never actually went to Germany, but he, the Romans were very interested in Germany because, uh, because they couldn't defeat the German tribes militarily. And so the Tacitus book Germania is almost a kind of ethnographic account of, of, uh, of you know, what, what, how were the German tribes organized and what, why were they so successful militarily and why couldn't we defeat them? So here he's describing the political institutions of the German tribes. And so over matters of minor importance, only the chief debates. On major affairs, the whole community, the, you know, the whole community debates. The assembly 
is competent to hear criminal charges, especially those involving the risk of capital punishment. These same assemblies elect, among other things, the magistrates who administer justice in the districts and villages. So what Tacitus kind of points out is that the, Germ the Germanic tribes have this incredibly participatory political system, you know, dominated by this assembly. Okay. Uh, so so, so why, why is that significant for the history of Western Europe? Because it is significant for the history of Western Europe because when the Western Roman Empire collapsed, it was overtaken by these German tribes, like the Franks, okay? And the Frank, one of the, the Franks, one of the leaders of the Franks, Clovis, I, you know, I guess I'd call him a political entrepreneur, took these Germanic, traditional Germanic political institutions and he fused them with late Roman state institutions, legal institutions, administrative institutions, the church. On the left here, you can see Clovis being baptized. So Clovis, you know, was a was a was a heathen, and you know, he he and all his army converted to Christianity and sort of co-opted the church hierarchy. Okay, and 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 so so he took these very participatory political institutions and he merged them with state institutions. Okay, and and so in our telling, this is the moment where this balance of power emerges between the strength of the state and the strength of society, and it becomes institutionalized to some extent. This is a, you know, this is one and a half thousand years ago, so it's a long time ago. And here in 882, we have the first, so, so what did Clovis do? He founded the Merovingian dynasty and the Merovingian became the Carolingian dynasty. And here's uh, Hinkmar, he was a, a bishop, describing a Carolingian assembly in 882. Uh, at the time, the custom was followed that no more than two general assemblies were to be held each year. Those of lower station were present in order to hear the decisions and to deliberate concerning them and confirm them not out of coercion, but out of their own understanding and agreement. So Hinkmar, this is the first kind of eyewitness description we have of a, of a, of a Carolingian assembly. It's strikingly similar to Tacitus's description uh, about you know, 700 years earlier of a Germanic assembly, okay? So, and here's, you know, here's something that I find very interesting. So what did Clovis do when he created the, the state? He promulgated a legal code, promulgated, you know, he didn't write it, you know, he, it's the Salic law. So here's, here's, a, here's the preface to an existing copy of the Salic law, which mm -hmm. describes how it was written, okay? There were four men chosen out of many amongst them, their names were Wizogast, Arrogast, Saligast, and Widogast. It, it, you know, it sounds like the Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, they came from beyond the Rhine. They were, the Franks were a German tribe. They came from beyond the Rhine, coming together in three legal assemblies and discussing the origin and cases carefully. They made judgment on each case as follows. So if you read the Salic Code, this is not like some lawgiver. You know, dictating what the law was going to be. This is an extremely bottom-up codification of social norms, practices. You know, so Clovis might have promulgated the Salic Code, but he didn't. He didn't write it. Okay. In fact, these assemblies wrote it. So, if you remember the quote from Tacitus, Tacitus talks about these legal assemblies too. So, it's an incredibly participatory construction of this legal system. Okay. So, so in the chapter on Europe, we sort of, you know, this is, this is a, you know, it's a kind of historical juncture where these things come together and that sets in motion a particular dynamic. 
And that dynamic we call the red queen effect, which is this competition between state and society. So this is not a kind of social engineering. It's not like, you know, you create this thing and it stays there. Like, look at what's happening in the United States at the moment, you know, I mean, the, 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 the United States is not just that these people got together in Philadelphia in the 1780s and wrote the constitution and everything else goes like a smoothly working machine. No, 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 there's constant competition and contestation, you know, to maintain the institutions. And so, but it's a very path dependent contestation. So in the chapter on, on Europe, we, we tell the story of, of, of the, you know, of the history of, of this competition between state and society and, you know, and the emergence of liberty in Western Europe. Okay, so, 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 so here's, you know, here's, I'm English, you know, so, 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 you know, here's the English version of this, you know, which is the Magna Carta. So the Magna Carta, you know, which was signed in 1215 by King John with his barons in Runnymede Meadow. Okay, so, so this is a typical British, uh, you know, uh, going over the top here, the birthplace of modern democracy, which it certainly wasn't, you know, but, but let me tell you something about, maybe some of you, have you ever been in Western, the suburbs of Western London, you've been to Runnymede Meadow by the River Thames. So this is where they negotiated the Magna Carta. So why, why there, you know, why did they do it there? You know, well, it turns out that Runnymede was a place where the Anglo-Saxon Witten used to meet. So this is 1215, this is after the Normans had conquered England, you know, King John, you know, was, was French basically. Uh, but, but they did this at a place where the Anglo-Saxon Witten had met. The Anglo-Saxon Witten was the, the Saxon, the Saxons were a German tribe, the Saxon version of this Frankish assembly, okay? So, so this, this, is, this is indicative of the continuity of this very participatory form of, of, of politics. Okay, and, and this, 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 you know, but of course this is not, again, this is not a, you know, this is not a piece of social engineering, it's an equilibrium. You know, this was a highly contested negotiation between King John and the barons. And, you know, what's interesting about the Magna Carta, if you've ever read it, is that it provides all sorts of rights and protection. It's not just about elites, it's also for villains, you know, of ordinary, serfs, ordinary people as well. So, so it's a very participatory document in many ways. So, so we try to tell the story from these deep roots of the, this evolution of this equilibrium, this contest between state and society and how this balance reproduces itself over time. And let me just give you one little, one little snapshot of that, which I, which I like very much because it's been so well researched by social scientists, uh, which is you know, kind of modern state building in England. Uh, so the modern state emerges out of this contest between state and society. So, so one side of this was described by the great sociologist Charles Tilly in his book, Popular Contention in Great Britain. And Tilly's looking at the emergence of what he calls kind of mass popular politics from the second half of the 18th century onwards. And sort of, you know, here he says, a new variety of claim making had taken shape in Britain. Mass popular politics took hold on a national scale. So, so what he shows over this period is that, you know, when there was a, a business cycle downfall or a depression, you know, at the start of the period, people would, you know, complain to the local squire or they'd accuse the baker of charging too much money for bread or they'd, they'd accuse the lord of the manor for paying too low 
wages and they'd seek supporters and patronage to help them. By the end of the period, you know, they weren't blaming the local squire or the baker. They were blaming the system in some sense. They were blaming parliament. They were organizing en masse to kind of mobilize. So there's a dramatic shift from kind of local to much more national politics. And, and there's a shift in the way people organize, the way society organized. Why did it happen? The expansion of the state pushed popular struggles from local arenas and reliance on patronage towards autonomous claim making in national arenas. So this is an example, of, you know, in, in our language of society becoming more powerful, more organized and better able to exercise control over the state. And, and you know, it, what's the evidence that the expansion of the state pushed popular struggles from local arenas? You know, well, here's a map I like from John Brewer's book, The Sinews of Power, which is his great study of the creation of the modern British fiscal state after the Glorious Revolution. You know, for the first time, there was a, there was, they created a, a real bureaucracy to raise taxes, raise excise taxes. And here's, here's a map of the excise rounds of Supervisor Cowperthwaite, uh, that's a good Saxon name. And, you know, here's all the excise collectors. This is, you know, Supervisor Cowperthwaite is going all around, you know, Yorkshire, checking who's producing what and how much bread are they producing and how much beer and how much butter. And, you know, and just, this is, you know, this is the state in your face for the first time. This is the state kind of monitoring you, taxing you. This is exactly what Tilly was talking about. But, but this process, process of state formation created this reaction from society. So, 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 so we like this as an example of this interplay between the state, the state gets more powerful, society organizes to control it. Okay, so this is, this is what we call the Red Queen effect. Okay, so, so, so this is, you know, this is the dynamic, trying to give you a flavor of the dynamic in what, you know, in this corridor. What about what about China? So, you know, why didn't, why didn't this dynamic get off the ground in China? Is that because they eat rice in China or use chopsticks? And in England, they eat wheat and, you know, no. Okay. You know, if you go back far enough into Chinese history, you see all sorts of things, you know. Uh, here's a book from the Kunti, which is like a, a kind of famous Confucian tract. Uh, I, I don't know China. Uh, I don't know Chinese, but, 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 but one of my Chinese students, uh, he showed me, oh, sorry, he, he, ah, sorry. He showed me this and it was just too good to miss. So, so, so if you look on the right, you know, this is the Chinese, let me tell you what this says. And, you know, it says, the king is the boat. The common people are the water. The water holds up the boat or the water sinks the boat. Okay, so, 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 so the, the, the people can hold up the boat with the king or they can sink it, you know. So this is a statement about accountability. You know, this is not so different from the Germanic tribes. This is, you know, this is pre-Qin, this is before the first dynasty when Chinese society was much more decentralized. In fact, there's all sorts of evidence of assemblies and control and accountability. And, you know, we know that, you know, if we go back in history, human society, when it was smaller scale, had all sorts of mechanisms of accountability and, 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 and participation and constraint on use of authority. And so this is, you know, this is not so different. But then what happens? Well, a new model emerges in China. 
about 100 years before the first dynasty, the Qin dynasty is kind of consolidates itself. This is one of the intellectual founders of that model, Shang Yang or Lord Shang. And here's, you know, here's a passage from his, um, uh, from, from his existing writings. He, he was a sort of Chinese Machiavelli. It's like, fa it's fabulous stuff to read. Uh, of course, writing, you know, thousands, over a thousand years, one and a half thousand years before Machiavelli. When the people are weak, the state is strong. Hence the state that possesses the way strives to weaken the people. So when the people are weak, the state is strong. The state that possesses the way strives to weaken the people. Okay, so the way, that's a complicated concept. Uh, you know, Tao, it's, you know, virtue. And, 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 but here, you know, here is, you know, here is a, the state should weaken the people. You know, so this is, you know, he didn't just provide kind of intellectual foundations for the Qin state. He provided all sorts of, practical design for the institutions, you know, of kind of militarized peasants and, and peasant farmers, you know, he was very antagonistic to commerce and, 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 you know, and this model, you know, this is China today, isn't it? You know, when the people are weak, the state is strong. Hence the state that possesses the way, President Xi loves to quote Confucius, you know, nowadays, uh, strives to weaken the people. And that's just what the Chinese state uh, does, you know, and, and the most recent version of that is the social credit system, you know, so now in China, you know, where everyone is going to have this social, anything you do in the shop or, you know, whatever it is that leaves a trail, you know, you get a social credit score. And, and if you're a good citizen, you'll be rewarded. And if you're a bad citizen, you'll be punished. You won't be able to buy a plane ticket or a railway ticket or go to a football match or so, 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 you know, so this is Lord Shang, this, this, this is, you know, this is, there we are. Okay, this is what we call uh, a despotic Leviathan. Okay, so, 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 and you can see, you know, so, so this is a situation where, you know, think of this balance of power between state and society I was describing in these kind of vignettes about the European history. This is where it kind of topples over, you know, in the Chinese case, what I'm saying is that, you know, if you go back into, you know, before the first dynasty, before the Qin dynasty, you see all sorts of things that are not so different from what happened in Western Europe, but, but it just toppled over into this situation where the state got this enormous dominance over society and a kind of intellectual project emerged to kind of consolidate that and legitimize uh, that, okay? So you might think, so what about these other cases? What about something like Yemen? How do I, how do I think about the other side of the corridor? Well, we have a really a very simple explanation for that in the book, which is in some sense, you know, the anticipation of this Chinese equilibrium, you know, is very scary, you know. So, 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 so the anticipation that creating hierarchy and authority or creating a state will lead to this dominance is enough to kind of make you avoid it, okay? So, so, so we we give this. Let me let, let's see how how am I doing for time? Uh, we 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 give lots of examples of this in the book, but but one of my favorite ones, I'll talk about it very fast. Is 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 an African example? Maybe it's too no too, too. There's no time limits, Professor. Keep going. It's okay. Okay. All right. You know, which is so. I'm just trying trying try to give you a flavor of the kind of mechanisms at work here. You know, so 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 so, you know, 
the in, in in the European case of the you know I gave you this idea of the state trying to control society you know that's what that's what the excise tax system was trying to do and society kind of pushing back against that but that's a competition in the Chinese case historically that kind of toppled over into a situation where the state dominated society so so the way we try to explain these other cases like Yemen or many cases in in Africa or other parts of the world is that in some sense, it's it's the it's the it's the anxiety that you'll get onto this Chinese path that that keeps keeps this equilibrium where society dominates the state or the state is very weak. I think you see that in many uh, parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And the, the leading example we use early on in the book is from Nigeria in, in Tivland, you know, in, in, in Nigeria, where you know the Tiv were a were a society. You know, with some similarities to Yemen society, it was a society. It was a society organized around very powerful kinship groups and sort of lineages, and it didn't have centralized uh, state authority. Uh, it didn't have state centralized authority at all. Of course, that's not true in Yemen. I mean, in Yemen, you know, they they had the whole experience of state formation. You know, with 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 Muhammad and the rise of of these very powerful Islamic. Uh, states from the you know from the seventh century onwards, and so so you know that that was a different kind of context in which uh, Yemen functioned relative to to you know and they had this you know they had Islam and they had religions that could help build institutions and and you know so that that this obviously that's different in this African case, but there are some uh, some types of similarities. And what's interesting about the Tiv. Is that it's it was it's kind of very well documented, you know, the politics in some sense of statelessness, you know. So 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 why why did why was power so decentralized within these families and kinship groups? Why was there not any kind of centralized political authority at all? And 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 the argument, you know, that ethnographers have. So here's I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but this brown. It's, I don't know if my cursor, my cursor doesn't seem to be, oh, it does, it is working if you can see it. Yeah. So the Tiv, Tiv land is down here, McCurdy, this is on the Benway River in southeast uh, or, or, of, 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 of Nigeria. And, and so, 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 so the, 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 you know, the, 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 one of the, this is one of the best documented examples of, you know, why was it so difficult to, to construct centralized authority and what, Paul Bohannon, who was uh, the ethnographer who, who kind of studied this, pointed out was that uh, any attempt to sort of exert authority or kind of tell other people what to do or kind of build something like political institutions ran into accusations of witchcraft. You know, so here is a, this is one of Bohannon's photographs. This is a diviner. And you can see here in his left hand, he has a kind of fly whisk. And this was used to sort of smell out uh, witchcraft. And Bohannon points out that, you know, men who acquired too much power were whittled down by means of witchcraft accusations. Nyambua, so this was just a particular kind of instance of, 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 of kind of supernatural power, was one of a regular series of movements to which tip political action with this distrust of power gives rise to so that the greater political institutions, one based on the lineage system and a principle of egalitarianism can be preserved. So here's our, the argument here, you know, which is we kind of try to make general in the book is that it's, you know, 
these societies like in Yemen or many of these African societies tend to be, you know, very egalitarian. Power is distributed widely, you know, within families and lineages. That's a very egalitarian. And there's this immense distrust of power because people can't see how do you create hierarchy and create authority and create a state and control it. You know, if you think about these, this Chinese equilibrium as being the counterfactual, that's the sort of main mechanism we emphasize here. Okay, so, 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 you know, here's, here, here's my diagram again, okay? So, so that's just trying to give you a little flavor of, of how we think about some of these historical cases and also how we think about, uh, uh, you know, some of the mechanisms at work here. You know, of course it's, you know, we're trying to compress a huge amount of variation in history into a simple, into a simple framework and push it how, as far as we can. And, you know, that's very much the agenda we had in why nations fail, you know. Uh, but of course, there's even more mechanisms than that. And, 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 you know, if I was going to think about other parts of the world, uh, you know, there's not, you know, this idea that somehow the state dominates society like China or society dominates the state, like, you know, in parts of Nigeria or Yemen, you know, or there's this balance, you know, which creates, you know, much more liberty and much stronger societies and states. You know, you can think, if you think about the world, then that's obviously missing lots of, that's missing lots of things. And, and so we introduce one other kind of category, which we call a paper Leviathan. And, and, and actually, you know, I mentioned that here because as I said, I don't know anything about Pakistan, but, but, but we try to use this concept to think about Indian history. Uh, and, 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 you know, what do I mean by more mechanisms? Well, you know, the image I gave of this competition between the state and society is, you know, the state wants to dominate society and society wants to avoid being dominated. So it organizes and it fights back and that creates this competition, what I call the red queen effect. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, what I've also, what I've seen, you know, kind of in my own research, I work a lot in Colombia and South America. My, my wife is Colombian. I I've taught in Colombia every summer for 25 years. Is that what I see in, in Colombia is, you know, it's not true that, that there's some sort of Shang Yang type kind of will to power here, you know. Uh, in fact, the state, the Colombian state is very anxious about building capacity because it worries about the reaction from society. It worries about people mobilizing. You know, think about that discussion I gave of Tilly's book where the state expands and society mobilizes and reacts, okay? So we call that in the book, the mobilization effect. And, and, and our argument is, you know, in a place like Colombia, it's exactly the anticipation of that mobilization effect, which, 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 which stops the state wanting to exert power. Okay. And it's also true that, you know, state weakness can be a good thing. <laughs> state weakness can be a good thing for elites. It can be exploited as a source of political power, of clientelism, and also a source of wealth. So the last kind of set of concepts we use in the book, you know, which we, which we think sort of expands the explanatory power is to say, you know, so far my discussion has been, you know, state elites want to be, they want to be powerful, you know, and if they can, they want to dominate society like in China. So, so society anticipates that, 
and they may just stop the whole thing in its tracks, like in Yemen or Nigeria, or this balance can emerge. But what I'm suggesting here is that actually state elites may not really want to push this thing. They may not want to, you know, they may not because, because of this mobilization effect, because they're worried about society may mobilize and they won't be able to control it, or they'll have to make lots of concessions to it. And it's also true, you know, state weakness can be exploited as a power, you know, it can be exploited for patronage and it can be exploited as a source of wealth. You know, it can be exploited. Who, who is it, you know, in Colombia who's able to take advantage of, you know, the incapacity of the state to loot assets, for example? Mm. Elites are, okay? So, 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 so these mechanisms, you know, create what we call a paper leviathan, mm. okay? And that's, you know, where are paper leviathans? Well, it, it's interesting because yeah, paper leviathan in some sense is like a low level equilibrium trap. It's like the state is weak and society is weak. The state doesn't get stronger because it doesn't want society to become stronger. And because it turns out state weakness can be exploited. That's point two here. So you can sort of think of, you know, you know this is a different sort of constellation. You know, it's like a low level equilibrium trap. You're not really in the corridor because this, this competition hasn't got going yet. Uh, it hasn't got moving, but, but it's, you're not veering off to one side or the other, okay? Uh, so that's, you know, that's how we try to talk about, uh, about the Indian, the, you know, the Indian case, it seems to us, is a kind of a case, you know, where we try to define, you know, Indian, India is sort of fascinating because when you go back in the history of India, you know, you actually see, you know, there's a very deep history of participatory politics, for example, in India. You know, going all the way back to the time of the Buddha in the north of India, you know, you see lots of evidence of assemblies and participation. You know, this, this notion of the panchayat is very ancient. The south of India, especially in Tamil Nadu, the very well-documented instances of popular participation. So, so, so there's, that's very un-Chinese, you know, but, but, but that's also tangled up with, with, you know, with, with, with the, I would say with the caste system and, you know, other aspects of society that, you know, makes it very difficult to create this sort of red queen effect. So that, I'm, I'm raising huge things that we could spend years talking about. So I'm just trying to give you a little flavor of that. Okay. So let, I, I, I'm happy to, you know, so, 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 you know, what, what's the, you know, what's the testable implications of this theory? Uh, you know, you must have read Milton Friedman's, you know, positive essay on positive economics. So, so I, you know, I guess, you know, we, we, you know, that's sort of tongue in cheek. I mean, we think more of this more of, in terms of, you know, here's a, here's a framework. It's very simple. There's a few mechanisms and, and perhaps it helps you think about all this variation we see in the world, but there's a few, you know, there's a few consequences, you know, uh, one is that, you know, Lord Shang was wrong. The most powerful states have the most powerful societies. That's, that's a sort of theorem in the model. You know, we could, we could argue about whether that's true empirically, but, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a consequence of the analysis in some sense. Uh, you know, and obviously here, you know, the, 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 the emphasis is very much on divergence. You know, uh, um, you know, there's no, no, you know, there's no process here, some natural process of convergence. You know, China has been in this equilibrium for, you know, for close to two and a half thousand years. Uh, 
you know, the idea that somehow a bit of, you know, 20 or 30 years of economic growth will turn China into, uh, into a liberal democracy has always seemed to me to be the most insane kind of idea, you know. So I think like thinking about the his, you know, how historically grounded these equilibria are sort of shows you that, you know, there's no natural process actually that, you know, the, 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 the you know, the history, history is about divergence, it seems to me, rather than, uh, rather than convergence. And, 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 you know, getting this shackled Leviathan is not about, you know, it's not about constitutional checks and balances, you know, like, look at what's happened in the United States in the last few years, you know, you, the, the fact that democracy has survived in the United States has nothing whatsoever to do with, with the constitutional checks and balances, you know, that Madison and all these people went on about, you know, it's about people in society, ordinary, you know, people in Michigan kind of believing it, you know, in the norms and, and being socialized into obeying the rules. And, you know, and, and it's like simple, small things, little people, you know, who've kind of held the thing together, it seems to me, while the elites, you know, have been, have been just playing with fire and they still, they still are playing with, with fire. And, and the, 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 you know, the, the kind of Madisonian system of institutions you know, has not kept it on the road. It's ordinary people that have kept it on the road. And it's, it's, and it's the, you know, and it's the anticipation of people working to defend the, you know, defend the institutions that has kept it on the road. So that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of image, you know, and this, this equilibrium is, it's hard, you know, the corridor is narrow, you know, and, and if you think about European history, you, you know, you're all thinking, well, hold on, hold on a second, you know, like, uh, you know, but but uh, didn't didn't the Nazis weren't the Nazis the German tribes yeah but then there was absolutism after the Thirty Years War and there was the Nazi state and and so so we tried to talk about these dynamics that sometimes this competition between state and society can get out of control and become unstable and you can lurch out of the corridor okay. I think, you know, why do we, in that case, why do we emphasize this deep history? Well, because I think that that does create some, some, some kind of common knowledge or it creates some common understanding of how things work in society. You know, I think one of the fascinating, you know, if you think about the German history about, you know, the crash when the absolutist state sort of crashes during the Napoleonic War, all the institutions that had been kind of sort of sidelined, you know, the building of the absolutist state bounce back, just like they do at the end of the First World War, and just like they did, you know, after the collapse of the Nazi state, you know, Germans sort of, this is how we do, you know, this is how we do things, we have these practices and principles, and they bounce back. And, and, and so I think, you know, for someone like me, who sort of tries to study this long run history, that that's what I find interesting, but obviously the short run dynamics can be like can be incredibly consequential in 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 terms of human welfare. So so you know again that's I'm just sort of anticipating some of the things that we talk about uh, in the book and and you know and and there's nothing you know this is there's nothing uniquely Western about liberty here. You know I mean like it's true that that a lot of the philosophical work I started by talking about, Locke and Hobbes, you know, it seems like a very Western nar narrative, you know, but I guess my, you know, I don't know, you know, you're the world well, but, but I've worked for many, many years, you know, in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm very comfortable with, with, you know, people have very different cultures and they have different ideas about, you know, a good life and what's important, but I'm very comfortable with, 
with saying that, you know, people are, people everywhere I've met all over Africa or South America, they are concerned about liberty in this way and, and being able to, to organize themselves and their lives and their communities in the way they, they want, want to. And, you know, there's very different models of that, but, but I'm sort of, I don't think there's anything Western about this notion of liberty. It could be that a lot of the intellectual writings and, and, and the canon is written by, you know, white Westerners. But, but to me, I'm sort of comfortable with this, you know, the TIV that I didn't, I couldn't talk for too much about the TIV, but, you know, to me in Africa, you know, Africans are, you know, Africans, one of the most dominant things in Africa for me is this incredible skepticism of power and authority and this, this, this you know, this, this kind of, but people value autonomy enormously in Africa. So, so, okay, so this is just, you know, so we talk a little, you know, what's, what's, what's the, it, you know, what are some of the implications? So I, I feel like you got the idea and I should, I should shut up and, and let people ask questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. For the I think that is a great overview of the book, although I must confess the book is so, so full of history and so full of detail that it's, I give you great credit for trying to cover it in a short period of time, but it's a fascinating book, which by the way, is on a prescribed reading list at PAD. All everybody's expected to read both your books. Well, and we, we also hold a book competition on, on, on people who wrote the, read the book. So uh, we get some interesting reviews and thoughts. So we communicate some of them to you. Okay, folks, let me uh, suggest that all of you send your questions um, to Fahad or whatever, to the central thing. Fahad will ask those questions. Meanwhile, I'll just um, ask Professor Robinson one or two questions. Okay. Um, Jim, you said this thing about, um, I mean, the, the, the picture that you draw in your book and what you said just now is a, a kind of a um, dialectic between state and society and how they kind of hold together and build something, build a state. So state endogenously emerges from bottom up and kind of holds together and society holds the state uh, to accountability. And this dialectic sort of continues and uh, you have a, now you position yourself in the narrow corridor. However, it, it seems to me like it's, it's a closed economy model that you know the state and society are working together. But in this age of globalization, there are important external forces that I don't think you've talked a lot about in your book. And I thought of, I was searching for those. So I'd like you to comment on that. One is this state building that the US has been on for the last 30, 40 years, where they've intervened in many states to you know, try and create democracy and create things, including Pakistan and Africa, etc. And we have failed to create democracy. So that's one thing. The other thing that's also very important, you keep saying that the society must somehow hold the state accountable and the state must look to society for cues and guidance, which is fine. But uh, there's the a large literature growing in the, in, the, in the developing countries. This lady, Dumbisi Mayo, I don't know whether you've read her or not, Mayo, which she talks about dead aid. And she talks about the state is not accountable to the local population, it's accountable to the, uh, to the aid agencies. And I've written about that a lot too. And that, you know, we feel totally disenfranchised in places like Pakistan. It's the, um, uh, the aid agencies, for example, the IMF. I used to work for the IMF for 30 years. The IMF has been in Pakistan every decade in the last 70 years. Uh, it, it, it has been done about 25 or 30 programs stretching over about 40, 50 years. Program after program, we are still in a program. And I, when I was in the IMF, I used to argue with all the mission chiefs who are good friends of mine, they look guys, at least let a crisis have it happen. 
Mohammed Delarian, for example, was our mission chief, and I used to tell him, let the crisis happen. He said, no, no, we can't let a crisis happen. So if you can't let a crisis happen, then obviously the, the society is pulled out of it. So how do you play around with it? And then also the donors come in with best practice so that everybody's forced to do the same thing all over. So there's no dialectic, there's no ability of local institutions to grow. How do you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I, so, so yeah, I have several comments. I, you know, I think, I think, I think Daron, you know, we're, Daron and I, we're, we're, we're accused of, of ignoring, I mean, I think you're rightly accusing us of ignoring these factors. And I think, I, I guess it's because whenever I studied a country in detail or got to know a country in detail, I guess I've always found these factors to be kind of second order. So, 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 and I, you know, I think that may depend, may that may, that may to be, be some, something to do with the places that I've studied. You know, I mean, you talk about, you know, American state building and, you know, but, you know, isn't that like just a complete failure? I mean, it just seems to me like, you know, if I thought about the history of Afghanistan, I mean, again, I'm not an expert on Afghanistan by any, by, you know, by any, so my knowledge is contained by having read a few books. Uh, but, you know, but it's, you know, Afghanistan has been subject to a lot, you know, long history of external, you know, the British meddling, the British twice tried to, you know, to kind of annex or control Afghanistan, completely unsuccessful. The Soviets were unsuccessful. The US, you know, was unsuccessful. It seems to me, you know, what would put Afghanistan on a different trajectory would be a genuinely legitimate kind of political project which would come from the Afghan people themselves, you know, without, so, you know, you could be right that outside meddling is making that more difficult to happen and delaying it, that, that, that could well be true, you know. And if I thought about, you know, I think like the way we talk about this and why nations fail particularly is that there's moments where external influence has huge impact, you know, like in colonialism, for example, you know, so, so colonialism, you know, sets off South America and North America on different tracks, but it, it's a kind of that one moment. And then after that moment has come, then it, the internal dynamics loom very large. But I agree with you that we, we tend to focus a lot on these internal dynamics. You know, if I thought about Africa, you know, Africa, for instance, you know, I, I've worked a lot in, I twice, you know, made the mistake of like doing things for the World Bank, you know, once in Sierra Leone and once in Zimbabwe, you know. and both of those experiences of sort of trying to understand in, in you know, in detail the, the, the politics and, and I was overwhelmed at the kind of irrelevance of the World Bank. You know, it could be that the IMF has much more power, you know, to, because, you, you know, you, you, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're funding the budget and, 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 and the bank is more decentralized and it's doing all these projects and stuff. But, you know, I, I've, I've come away from, from both of those experiences, you know, thinking the World Bank is really marginal to understanding anything that goes on in Sierra Leone and Zimbabwe. And, and so I, when I read, I have read Dambisa Moyo's book and I, you know, I should, I should, I read it when it came out, but I, I, I thought she was enormously overemphasizing the power of, of um, these, uh, you know, these external institutions. But, but of course it, it, you know, it differs a lot, you know, Pakistan, you know, is in a very different global, 
you know, geo-global position than, that, you know, like who really cares about Sierra Leone at the end of the day? You know, like the State Department doesn't care about Sierra Leone. You know, nobody really cares about Sierra Leone. But I guess Pakistan is something completely different. And it could just be that I've never worked in a country where these forces are more powerful. So, so I certainly see the mechanisms, you know, I, I think, you know, I certainly see the mechanisms, I guess, as I say, it's just, it's just the places where I've worked, you know, for many, many years, it's always seen these kind of internal dynamics that have been the kind of more significant thing. And that's, you know, like, if you look at like a lot of the sort of more specific research projects that we've worked on, they've always been looking at these kind of internal dynamics or internal politics or institutions and 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 but but I do think that I agree that you know we're we're guilty for not conceptualizing that well enough and 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 we've talked about it many times actually but but we've ne we've never really delivered on it I have to say yeah thank you the other question that I have is your example of the TIV and how the acquisition of witchcraft could uh, yeah destabilize the elite. I mean, we've got here uh, uh, an equivalent of that here in Pakistan, and I think all over the world, actually, especially in the developing world, which is corruption. So now what happens is that every time there's a leadership quarrel among the elite, they accuse each other of corruption. We are going through that right now. And the accusation of corruption is bandied about. Each party comes in and tells the other party they're corrupt. But there's another arbiter in the middle that you also have to consider in your framework, which is an organized army. We've got a very good, a very uh, large organized army. Perhaps I should say we've got a large organized colonial state. This goes back to your log settler mortality type thing. Yeah. We've got a very large colonial organized colonial state. And one famous Pakistani uh, sociologist long time ago in the 1950s wrote a famous paper called, um, um, remind me, what's the name of the paper? Alvi's paper? Um, the, it's, it, basically the upshot was that the colonial state is organized and the society at large, especially the political society, because of the colonial uh, setup is totally disorganized. So the colonial state tends to exert more power than the politician and prevents the politicians from organizing. And the society obviously remains out of this picture. And that's what we are seeing even today, that the army and the politicians even right now are talking about what they call a grand national dialogue to try and see how they can move forward because every five, 10 years, you can see, you hear every decade or so, Pakistan goes into a coup and there's a struggle between the army and uh, lots of books have been written about that. So how would, you, how would you fit that into your analysis? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I love the analogy between corruption and witchcraft, you know. Uh, it's sort of, I mean, it's true, you know, in African society, the exercise of political authority is is intimately connected with witchcraft, you know, because because you know tradi traditionally in Africa chiefs were supposed to be they didn't call them witches, but they were supposed to be able to use supernatural power to combat witches. But of course, if you can control supernatural power, then you're kind of a witch yourself, you know, and so you could always be accused of. So it, corruption is a bit like that. It's sort of like if you go into politics stuff is almost inevitably going to happen that's going to look like corruption, you know, or can be construed as being corruption. So it becomes like a tool of, that's it, that's an interesting analogy, actually. We, we've been doing some, actually, I, you know, this is, this is a digression, but we, we've actually collected a lot of data the last few years about witchcraft in, in, in Congo, in the north of Congo, like looking at the connection between witchcraft and politics and witchcraft. Actually, so they're all, they're all so into it in Congo. 
Uh, so, but it's very hard to understand. But you know, but but I love that. I love that analogy. I'm going to think about it. Um, yeah. So the army. That's that's interesting. Yeah. So so that maybe that. I mean, again, this is not you know this is not the sort of legacy you see in Africa. But but perhaps you know that there's a very different legacy in South Asia of you know the colonial state. You know, was was organized in a very different way than the colo British colonial state was in Africa. It even had its own office, right? It wasn't so 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 so. And, and, you know, this military, I mean, the British used the, the Indian army, you know, to kind of run, you know, to govern its whole empire, you know. So, so there was investment in state institutions, military institutions in South Asia, which, 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 you know, which was not true anywhere else, more or less, in the British Empire. So I don't know, I have to think about that. But so that's a kind of, it's almost like there's a sort of, there's another player, you know, there's another player which, which you know, this sort of dynamic that we talk about can't get underway because there's a spoiler that doesn't want it to happen, you know, but perhaps that's a bit like our paper Leviathan, you know, which, you know, we don't have the army in there, but it, the, you know, the, the idea with the paper Leviathan is that, you know, state elites don't want this competition to get going, you know, because society will become too organized and society will become too powerful. And perhaps what you're saying is actually it's the army doesn't, in the, in the Pakistan case, it's the army that doesn't want this red queen effect to start operating because then it will lose, it will lose its control over the society. Um, so that, that's interesting. Yeah. That I'd love to know more about that. And, you know, if you, it, Send me the citation to that paper. I, I, I should start doing sure. my homework before I come. Sure, sure. Well, let's see. Fahad, do you have any you know, organizer questions now? Um, yes, sir. there are a number of questions. A lot of questions have but poured in on a few Because we can't face, uh, you know, uh, waste Jim's time. So it'll down, down to the few important ones. Go ahead. Sure, sir. Um, so the first question is uh, primarily about the intersection of uh, state society and institutions, and it's been asked by Rafi Ullah, who's a researcher at PIDE. Mm -hmm. And he asks that, why do extractive institutions um, in some hybrid regimes seem to persist? Have elites been able to successfully dupe the excluded majority, or do the excluded still maintain rational calculus and the power dynamic can tilt any given time? You know, well, I mean, our, our story, you know, about the persistence of extractive institutions is really about, you know, power in some sense, you know, and extractive institutions, extractive economic institutions are, are you know, are, 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 are good, you know, are good for some people, uh, but they, they make the whole society poor. Why are they in equilibrium? Because, you know, because those, the people they benefit are able to exert, you know, power over over the equilibrium but i but i do you know i do think again that you know one thing that asamoglu and i have never got into is you know sort of more non-rational mechanisms you know i think like you know what you'd like the, the I, I, you know you, you can tell that what's going on in the united states is rather on my mind at the moment you know but what you see at the moment is a huge amount of motivate what i would call what social psychologists would call motivated reasoning you know meaning people have this view of the world and they process information in such a way as to kind of reconfirm their view of the world, you know? So, so, so after the Trump, after all this storming of the Capitol last week, uh, you know, the BBC interviewed all these people, these Trump supporters and the Trump supporters were sort of saying, 
oh, this was this was this was all organized by these left wing agitators to discredit the Trump administration. It's, it's a completely insane you know, view, which is inconsistent with everything we know about what went on. But people are processing its motivated reasoning. You know, I, I you know, when I where I live in Bogota, you know, when, where my wife and I stay in Bogota, there's a neighborhood. Uh, it's a fascinating neighborhood called La Perseverancia. And it was started by a kind of oligarch called Leo Kopp, who, who created the first modern brewery. He was German. He came and he created the first modern brewery in Colombia called Bavaria. So today that was that was, you know, that was 130 years ago. Today, 97 percent of beer sold in Colombia is produced by Bavaria. So they basically had this monopoly for 130 years that Barrio Bavaria, this La Perseverancia, he built it for his workers, you know, basically. So he was a he was a monopolist and he was also a monopsonist. Mm. He built this barrio for his his workers, you know, and and it's poor. It's today it's poor, you know, but if you go and talk to people, they identify so much with Bavaria. In fact, on Sunday, you know, if you're in Bogota, I can take you. You, if you go to the main cemetery where he's buried, people go to the grave of Leo Kopp and they ask for, for miracles, you know, like the guy who basically created this monopoly, which has been extracting rents from Colombians for 130 years, people go and, and, and they, with their rosaries and they ask for miracles, you know, so what is that, you know, so, so, so there's a sort of ideological project which has helped cement these extractive institutions. And so that's, you know, that's very much in evidence in the United States at the moment. I, you know, again, that's completely outside the scope of our theory. You know, in our theory, you know, how could extractive institutions survive democratization, for example? How could they survive political power being, you know, spread more in society? Well, you know, because you have tools for controlling that, you know, patronage or you have or vote buying or, you know, so it's not the quality of democracy is low, you know, but, but I think it's also, of course, true you know, what you see is that, you know, that's much more complicated than the model we have. You know, it's much more, you know, if you think about all this populism and there's this kind of symbolic or non-rational side of politics that I guess we've never, we've never really known how to study, you know, or, or we've never really known how to get, I think it's not well understood by, by you know, by, 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 by social scientists, unfortunately, you know, and that's because maybe we have too simple a model of human behavior and, and human motivation. And, and so, uh, sorry, that was, a, that was a long and not very good answer to a good question. Um, uh, another question is asked by Dr. Mahmoud Khalid from Pied. He asked that, can you please elaborate more on Shakad Leviathans? Is it historically determined or by design or will it be a result of certain conditions prevailing in a specific context of time and space? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I was emphasizing the non-design, I was emphasizing more the kind of equilibrium feature rather than the design feature. Of course, you know, I, you know, I talked about King Clovis, you know, design helps like King Clovis, obviously he sort of, you know, he, he, you know, he wanted to create this state. If you, I don't know if he thought about it like that, but he wanted to create a kind of polity and he, he understood that the Romans, you know, were good, good at doing some things, you know, they were good at organizing, they were good at collecting taxes. And so he wanted to co-opt. So there's an element of design there in the sense of co-opting those institutions and merging them, you know, so for example, he took these Roman 
kind of territorial administrative units, and he he mapped them onto these kind of Frankish war bands. So so each war band was kind of put in charge of a Roman territorial unit. So it's quite a clever it's a quite a clever it's a constitutional design, if you like. You know, so there is an element of engineering. You could say James Madison, you know, Hamilton, these people in Philadelphia were doing something similar. You know, in in you know, I mean, most uh, you know. So so I think that element of design, you know, is important. Obviously, I mean, you know that that. But but I think. You know, the, 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 it's very hard to kind of reconfigure equilibria like that. You know, the US, when they wrote the constitution, you know, I think that, again, that's something that's very hard to understand. Like, when can you, when can you really change an equilibrium by doing something like that by design? Or, you know, when does the equilibrium kind of overwhelm attempts to change, to change it? You know, obviously the US was functioning in a particular kind of context when the constitution was written. I think it's, it's believable that the constitution played some causal role, you know, in, 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 in promoting inclusive political and economic institutions, but, but, but it also had to adapt itself to slavery and the, you know, the, the marginalization of women, the disenfranchisement of women, you know, in fact, women were more disenfranchised after the constitution than before, because, because many women had political rights, for example, under the articles of confederation at the state level, which they then lost so, 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 so I, you know, I think there's an interplay. I mean, I guess we, we're trying to downplay this design element because, because, you know, because we sort of feel that this equilibrium, you know, that, that sort of, that, you know, that leads you to think you can just kind of, you know, you can design your way into the corridor, you know, but I think that's very different, difficult if that's out of, if that's very out of sync with the way society, you know, is, 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 is organized. You know, think about South Africa, you know, when South Africa, when apartheid collapsed in South Africa in 1994, you know, they tried in some sense to write a constitution which would, you know, which would get them into the corridor in some sense of empowering black people and kind of reconfiguring the distribution of wealth and opportunity in society away from white people and towards, you know, Africans. And that's been, that's a very, that's a very difficult. That's been, that's a very difficult problem, you know, which they haven't really managed to solve. I would say uh, in South Africa. Um, so, uh, you know, we don't have good theory in social science about the circumstances under which there's some work on this about when can you change an underlying equilibrium and and how can you change it. But but uh, and you know we've done theoretical work on that a lot of our work in some sense on democratization was about that was trying to like look at models where there was an interaction between what we call kind of de facto power and de jure power and de jure power was you know writing political you know writing the rules and designing political institutions but underneath that you know there's a kind of real politic of you know people have guns and they can solve the collective action problem and somehow you have to you have to find a balance between those things, but I, you know, I won't pretend. So we, we spend a lot of time thinking about that theoretically, but, but the problems are hard. And, you know, here I'm just kind of emphasizing less this design aspect and much more this equilibrium aspect. Okay. Wunnaz um, Makbul from Pied has asked that in your state versus um, society argument, how can we analyze the issue of diversity of actors within a state and within a society? Diversity in what in what sense? 
How can we analyze the issue of diversity of actors within a state and within a society? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think diversity. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a very simple, you know, to talk about the state and society. You know, in some sense, you know, um, this earlier discussion of the army is about well, actually, you know, there's different. There isn't a state elite. There's different sorts of state elites, maybe in competition with each other or cooperating, and and society, you know, can be very very diverse. You know, there can be lots of different interests, and you know, and I guess that's that's uh, you know that's 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 one of the reasons why we tend to think that that having a kind of more democratic system or a situation where political power is more spread spread in society, you know, that's 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 that, that leads to more inclusion because it creates more equal opportunities for different groups with different objectives and different ideas. And, and uh, you know, I guess the, the story that, you know, we have about, you know, if you think about my example of, from Tilly's work is, is that, you know, uh, part of the, uh, of the strengthening of, of society is part of a kind of increasing ability of different groups to, to cooperate and collaborate together and define, you know, act collectively or define a common project. So, so I think, you know, diver I think, you know, diversity can create, you know, diversity can be a great thing, you know, because it can create creativity or innovation and it's sort of intrinsically valuable, but obviously, you know, a lot of diversity makes it difficult for society to act in a kind of collective way. And I guess, so in some sense, you know, if you thought about that Tilly example, it's like part of the strength of society is finding ways for different groups to act in a common way to, you know, to discipline the state or to establish general principles that they all value, you know, like the rule of law, for example, or basic public goods that everyone values. So. I don't know if that's, I guess that's the way I think about it. Okay. Sure. So there's this one question which uh, is in a way related to the article by Dr. Hamza Alvi, which Dr. Nadim was also talking about. It's basically the, it's basically the title, The State in the Post-Colonial Societies. Yeah. Um, it speaks of that with all extractive institutions mm -hmm. and Western hegemony that still exists over the third world, how can a state find liberty and have state power for a proper functioning of the state institutions? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, this is a bit related to the previous question about globalization. You know, I think, you know, it's not a, of course, it's not a coincidence that the, uh, that the parts of the world which have been most successful economically, you know, in the past 50, 60 years are parts of the world which managed to avoid European colonialism. I mean, if you think about Japan or China or Korea or Taiwan, you know, these are all places that avoided being colonized, you know, by, by, by the Europeans. And they were able to create a kind of autonomous project, you know, of, of, of defining their institutions and you know their goals and 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 uh, uh, you know albeit autocratic or whatever you know uh, but 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 that sort of you know and I you know I think that's I think that's something that's been very difficult 
it's been very difficult to develop that project in these, these many of these post-colonial states. I think that's right. I mean, I don't know so much about South Asia, but you know, where I work in Africa, you know, it's very difficult to develop a kind of social contract in a, in a, in a place like Nigeria, you know, which is just so diverse in terms of, you know, peoples and, 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 you know, the history, historical institutions, historical political institutions are completely different in different parts of Nigeria, the West or the East or the North, you know. And so how do you, how do you take that and how do you build some national state you know i think that's that's you know so that's been very difficult and and you know we were you know maybe i also in our work we tend to underestimate the extent to which post-colonial meddling you know i'm always just struck by the level of ignorance you know mostly though of, of you know in the in britain or 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 united states of what goes on in the world you know like the 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 you know, the level of ignorance which went along with these American projects in Afghanistan and Iraq, for example, is just kind of mind boggling. And, you know, this, this is my typical experience in Africa as well, is that, you know, people just don't understand what goes on in Africa. They don't understand people's concerns. They don't understand, you know, so, so, so to what extent that, I'm sure that makes it more difficult you know, to, 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 to kind of solve these problems today and cre create legitimate institutions. How important is that meddling today relative to the sort of, you know, the legacy of colonialism? I, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that. You know, I think, you know, I think there's, you know, colonialism and the whole kind of European colonial project left many insidious legacies, you know, in, in, in you know, intellectual ones included, you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of social theory is kind of just, highly calibrated to the Western experience, you know, and, and then sort of projected into the rest of the world. And I have to say, you know, uh, this is always something I feel, you know, kind of, this is why I was a bit defensive. When I talk about liberty, I feel I have to, you know, I, I'm always anxious. Is that is that some kind of Western thing, you know, or is that is that something that, you know, is it too specific to kind of the Western historical experience to kind of talk about more generally? And, you know, that's why I, I said a few things about that. But, you know, I, I'm always very concerned about a lot of social theory, and maybe that makes it very difficult for, for post-colonial states to flourish, you know, because they're continually having to deal with ideas and models of what they should be doing, which were kind of developed somewhere else and sort of lumped down, you know, in Pakistan or in Nigeria or wherever, you know, kind of best practices, you know, which aren't best practices developed in Pakistan. They're best practices developed in, you know, in, 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 in Idaho or something. And, you know, but Pakistan isn't Idaho. The society's different, the, you know, I think that's, that's, I, I tell my students, this is, you know, this is where social science will go in the next 50 years, trying to conceptualize these things better. You know, it's, there's hegemonic intellectual projects, not, not just hegemonic colonial political projects. Okay. So the last question would be uh, from Professor Alia. She has asked, what are some of the enabling conditions for nurturing a balance between state and society? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I think, you know, part of the, we, we talk about that towards the end of the book. I think, you know, part of the thing, part of what we like about that diagram, it doesn't really come out when I, when I get, when I talk about it for 45 minutes is that, you know, it sort of suggests that the nature of the problem is very difficult, it's very different depending on where you are, 
you know there isn't a kind of one size fits all you know there isn't like this is what you have to do you know if you want to have liberty or whatever that the challenge the ver there are very different sorts of challenges and it kind of depends you know you can talk we try to talk about those different challenges in the diagram depending you know to where you are the challenge is different so so that's you know it's simple but it, it but i think the point is kind of quite profound so 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 it, it's very i think you know this is often the you know, I guess this is a problem with a lot of this institutional research, which is that, you know, you try to come up with concepts and a language for making kind of broad statements, you know, but, but, but once you come to sort of saying, you know, what should happen in Nigeria or something, then all the specificities of the context become incredibly important, you know. So, so I think, you know, I think, you know, the challenge in Yemen is, you know, is completely different from the challenge in China or somewhere else. You know, that's a very crude statement, obviously. But, 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 you know, so I think we tried to talk about some examples of that. Actually, in fact, we just wrote something for the International Monetary Fund, talking about the International Monetary Fund, where we tried to, they asked us some people in Ralph Chami, I don't know if you know Ralph, who's this, I guess he's Tunisian. He asked us, uh, he, he challenged us to kind of, can you distill some some kind of lessons, you know, some sort of general lessons about how you get into the corridor. So Brad, I could actually send you that paper if, if, if you're interested in circulating. It's sort of, it's not, it's not in the book actually, it's kind of following up from the book and it actually has different historical examples. We actually have these examples from Somaliland and Sierra Leone and things that's not in the book, but it's actually kind of thinking about strategies for getting into the corridor and it's actually i said we have some stuff at the end of the book but actually i think the thing we wrote for the imf is actually more interesting <laughs> that hindsight is a wonderful thing isn't it you know it's actually you know it's like sometimes you know you write something and it's only a couple of years after you write it that it, you kind of understand it you know that sounds crazy but it's true i shouldn't say that to students should i but <laughs> no but they must learn that the academic process never ends, it goes yeah. on, never ends, it goes on. Jim, there are a large number of questions. We've cut them short to keep you, uh, not to keep okay. you. Uh, but one last question that I'd like to throw at you and Raj okay. Jamie, yeah, I got him into the fund, so I'll definitely get that paper from him. Or if you can send it to us, that'll be great. Um, the, the one issue that I also find kind of that you don't take up too much is the role of ideology and the role of warfare. I mean, now it has been pointed out by people like Ian Morris or whatever, the warfare moves society. And ideology, China especially would argue yeah. that they rose out of ideology as well as warfare. India got its independence peacefully. We never really fought for it, for it. we got it. China fought for its independence, went through a whole series of reset movements, greatly forward, cultural revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the Chinese state, autocratic though it might be, we were discussing this the other day with uh, Cass Sunstein, and he was saying that, you know, hey, the Chinese state is very, very experimental. It, it may not be using behavioral economics, but it experiments a lot, and it, it moves with experiments. Whereas the, the state in Pakistan, India, etc., is kind of top-down and kind of see, in a, incapable of experimenting incapable of learning from ideology. So what role would these play? And also think about it, Trump, for example, the whole Trump phenomenon, uh, yeah. 6, January 6th, was an ideology. It's an ideology phenomenon. An ideology yeah. is dividing the state or dividing people, societies, so deeply. How will we handle that? Yeah, I, yeah. 
I mean, I, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I, we you know I think we're thinking a lot about uh, we're thinking, you know, we're thinking a lot about that. I mean, when, you know, when I talk about Lord Shang, you know, what was that other than a sort of intellectual revolution in some sense? You know, it was a kind of here's a, you know, of course, it was followed by, a, you know, by a mil by the military conquest of all the other warring states by the Qin state. But but it was a it was a it was a it was inspired by by an intellectual revolution, you know, and and a kind of vision of this is how you should organize society, you know, and 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 I think you know I think that's one thing that's very striking, you know. I mean, I've actually been spending a lot of time the last few years trying to understand uh, Chinese philosophy and and Confucianism, and and it's just staggering. I I you know I went to I gave all these lectures in Taiwan a few years ago, and it just kind of blew me away how how knowledgeable about and how powerful those ideas are in people's lives, you know. And I've never done research in China, but 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 I've just been you know, and if you study that, you see it's like extremely different from Western systems of thought, you know, the, the kind of notion of like social order and how society kind of structured. And, and so, so I, you know, I think those things, and I, I, you know, I've thought about this, I understood, I know most about this in an African context. And, you know, again, that's like strikingly different from Western thought. And, you know, of course, then in, in, in South Asia, you have, again, something completely different. So I, I, I think we're thinking a lot about about this, about you know, some sense like like what is it, you know, what co constitutes a sort of legitimate organization of society or legitimate structure of institutions, you know that, you know that is an ideological thing, isn't it? You know, it's about you know what humans believe and what we can agree to, and 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 I think you know I don't think there's one way of doing that. I think you know there's very different systems of thought and there's different ways of conceiving of of you know what a you know what human flourishing is and 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 you know i guess we're sort of making the claim here you know that's again why i was sort of defend why i'm a little bit defensive in talking about liberty because you could sort of say well the notion that humans value liberty as an ideological construction you know is it or is it is there some is there some sort of general kind of universals about humans i think that's that's you know that's an interesting intellectual discussion so i think I think we're guilty of ignoring that too, but we're we're trying to rectify. It's very hard to have a, you know, have a theory of that. It's very hard to have a kind of mathematical theory about it. I guess we're trying to think about it. You know, we're very comfortable as economists thinking about innovation, about technological innovation. You know, coming up with new ideas to which improve productivity or new goods and services. And so I guess we're trying to think about it like that. But but I, I don't pretend we have a good model of it. But but so I think. Good, yeah, point taken. I mean, I think warfare, there's quite a lot of discussion of warfare in the book, but but not about, about this question of did war create states? So it's not, that's a slightly different thing that you're talking about. Like what's the, again, I've never really believed these ideas about warfare building institutions and, you know, the necessity of warfare um, and, and what the consequences are. But But we should think, we should think more about that. I mean, uh, you know, um, yeah, I was just trying to think about Ian's book. What you know, I mean, Ian's book has this, you know, this view that it's not quite clear what the mechanisms are, but this view the why the West, you know, the West is ahead for now. Why the West is ahead for now? I think that that book. I mean, he has many books. I guess he also has this book about. He has a book on War Two. 
War, what is it good for? Yeah, that's yeah. I don't believe that. <laughs> Actually, I, I I don't I don't believe I don't believe this idea that kind of war is a big driver of human progress. Honestly, yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Robinson. This has been a real treat, a New Year present to us. I think our kids will be very inspired. Well, they're already inspired by your work, but it's very good to see each other physically. And I must confess, COVID has one good thing of COVID is Zoom. We have all discovered Zoom, and we've discovered the, how distance has now shrunk. We used yeah. to we used to always talk about inviting you people to Pakistan, and we'd always call people, and they'd always say we are too busy. But now, thank God, thanks thanks to Zoom, we've got you. Um, but uh, but hopefully one day when things are better, we'll get you to come to Pakistan as well and talk to us because it's always inspiring to listen to you. Thank you very much, Professor Robinson. All the best for a wonderful yes. discourse. Yes, yes. yes. I, I would love to come and see you in person. Yes. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.